0: I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 as we continue to just think upon the birth of Jesus this day before Christmas. Luke chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1. This is the quintessential birth story of Jesus and we'll spend our time this morning considering it. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Do you believe in the historical Jesus? Did the man in the Bible named Jesus exist? If your answer is no, then you are in very limited company. The evidence for Jesus is overwhelming. Even among secular scholars, it's viewed as a fool's game to argue against the existence of Jesus. As a matter of fact, no one, not a single historian, denied the historical authenticity of Jesus until the 19th century. The first person to try it was a German historian named Bruno Bauer. After 1900 years of Jesus' existence being established historical fact, Bauer decided that every historian before him was wrong. And so he attempted to rewrite history deleting Jesus from the script. But unlike Jesus, Bauer's theory is now dead. It's been overwhelmingly rejected by scholars and historians alike. Even Bart Ehrman, a well-known anti-Christian scholar, has said, quote, the reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. He goes on to write, this view is held by virtually every expert on the planet. End quote. Friend, you may think that it is foolish foolish to believe that Jesus walked our planet. But it is not foolish. It is foolish not to believe that. The first century historian named Luke places the birth of Jesus within its historical context for us here in the second chapter of his history book. Luke bookends the birth of Jesus. On the one end, there's Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire, and on the other hand, there is Quirinius, the governor of Syria. This gives us a very good time frame in which Jesus was born. Luke also places for us the birth of Christ within the town of Bethlehem. This, of course, is not where his parents, or at least Mary and Joseph, were living at the time. This is not where Jesus grew up, but it is where Jesus was born. You see, Luke, the historian, he was very careful to get the details right, just like any good historian you see his original readers he they lived through the events that luke is reporting on it's critical that he gets the details correct so his book is not rejected if he doesn't get the details right, then his historical masterpiece will be thrown out and not stand the test of time. Clearly, it has stood the test of time. Apparently, he got the details correct. After setting the historical context, Luke presents us with well-researched specifics on the birth of Jesus. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see, Luke records that Jesus, the Son of God, entered history and walked our planet. Now, if that's true, then it is a staggering thought. That is a life-altering thought. I'm going to ask you to Assume with me for just a couple of minutes that it's true that the Son of God did invade history and that he walked our planet. Because if it is true, then perhaps even more staggering than that truth is how Jesus, the Son of God, chose to get to our planet and secondly, how he chose to spend his life once he was here. If I'm the son of somebody important, if I'm the son of a rich man, and I travel somewhere, I get there flying first class. I arrive in luxury, looking good. I represent my dad and my dad's success. When I get there, I stay in the nicest of hotels, and then I have fun. I indulge in whatever that place might have to offer. But not the son of God. His trip to earth is marked with hardship and suffering from the very beginning. first off, he chose to be born into his destination, not fly first class, be born. That's gross. <laughs> Where was he born? In a barn? Maybe? Under the eve of some cave like we have over at the rims? Maybe in a pasture? Most likely outside? And then he's wrapped up so he won't scratch himself. So he'll stop shivering. And placed in a food trough. Not exactly first class. His parents are then forced to become refugees, flying, or fleeing to Egypt to protect Jesus from a baby-killing king named Herod. Why didn't the Son of God go someplace where there weren't baby-killing kings? After a rough start in life, He grows up poor in a blue-collar family. Somewhere along the line, he loses his dad. We know how hard that can be. Did his dad run off? Did he die? Was he murdered? We don't know. But he's gone nonetheless. As an adult, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus lived a life of exhaustion, hunger, waking up before dawn, working late, and experienced times of intense sadness and grief. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He never married, never had the intimacy of knowing a wife, the friendship of having a spouse. You never know the, he never knew the joy of having children. He spent his days helping people in very difficult circumstances. Slavery, racism, sexism, coping with death, demon possession, all kinds of sickness, including terminal illness, helping the homeless and the marginalized, and feeding the hungry. Friend, that is tireless work. No wonder he's exhausted. Have you ever been involved with that kind of work? Or maybe you know somebody that's been involved with that kind of work, somebody rescuing somebody? from the slave industry. You do know there are more slaves today than any other time in history. That's exhausting work. That is heartbreaking work. I watched the movie, The Sound of Freedom, this last week, and uh, if you don't know what that's about, I'm just gonna have you Google it later, but it has to do with children and slavery, and it's awful and you watch these people that work in that industry and your heart just can't help but break as they seek to rescue. Have you ever known somebody that helps with racism, fighting against racism, sexism, people who work in the death industry, doctors? Have you ever noticed that these people usually aren't large? They're thin. They have receding hairlines. There's bags under their eyes. They're tired. This is how Jesus spent his days. His family thought he was crazy. The Bible tells us that his brothers thought that he lost his mind. He himself was virtually homeless, couch surfing, to use today's vernacular. He had no place to lay his head, is what the Bible says. He was visited and tempted by the devil himself. He would have been medicated in today's society. Once, an angry mob tried to throw him off a cliff. The religious leaders were, who were supposed to love and take care of him hated him. You see, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Joy to the world. The man who brought joy to the world was a man of sorrow. It's Isaiah 53, verse 3. Another way to translate that word sorrow is pain. He was a man of pain. Despised and rejected. And yet, this is the life he chose. He chose. Even as he suffered the death penalty at the end of his life, I mean, we haven't even talked about the cross, but even as he hung there suffering the death penalty, what were some of his last words? His last words, of course, is, It is finished. But what did he say right before that? He said, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. His whole life, from the time he was born to the time he was nailed to a cross, thirsty and dying. It was marked with suffering. I spent some time thinking about that phrase, I'm thirsty, this week. I can imagine his... His lips cracked from the hot sun. His mouth covered in saliva so white it looks like cotton. Throat so dry he can't swallow. His voice so, so hoarse he could scarcely speak. He of course had not drank anything since the night before when he took communion. Since then, he has sweat blood, been beaten within an inch of his life, and now has large chunks of his backside missing. He hangs there, not only bearing a cross, but bearing the weight of the sins of the world. And to add injury to insult, he's thirsty. He's terribly thirsty thirsty why doesn't he do something about that he's done so much for others he, he's turned water into wine he's calmed the waters of the raging sea he stilled the rain of a storm clearly he has the upper hand over water Why didn't he make it rain while he was hanging there? Instant relief. Just stick his tongue out. Just make it rain. Why did he choose this life? Why did he choose this death? Because he knew you would suffer too. Because he knew you would hurt too. He knew how tired and angry and anxious we get. He knew the pain that we feel. He experienced the loneliness, the loss, the depression, the circumstances that drain us. He knew the pressures. He knew the expectations that we would have to face. He even knew how thirsty we'd get. You see, Jesus knows Not because he read about it, but he's experienced it. Jesus knows how hard life can be. And he didn't want you to go through that alone. Without someone who would understand. Without someone who would be there. You see, Jesus did not want you to face this life without him. Emmanuel, God with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it's one of my favorite passages in scripture. I've written it, I, I didn't write it originally. I've written it in my own words I wrote Romans, not Hebrews. (laughs) I've rewritten it and kind of expanded on it in my own words. It's a discipline we can all do as we study scripture. Let me read it for you. Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he's gone through it too. Yet he went through it without ever committing sin, which means he knows the way through the hardest of times. So whenever we are in need, we should go unafraid to the throne of our merciful God. There, there, we will be treated with unending and undeserved kindness, and we will find all the help that we need. Merry Christmas. Christ has come. It's no wonder that God then sends an angel to lonely social rejects babysitting sheep to tell them that help has arrived. Jesus is here. Guys, Jesus is Here. Now, shepherds back then were about as low on the social scale as a person could get. If anyone needed an understanding friend, if anyone sensed their need for rescue, rescue from sin, rescue from themselves, healed of heartache, healed of from past mistakes. It was lonely shepherds. The guys cast out from society left to take care of the sheep. The angel says, I bring you good news of great joy, great joy. Well, Mr. Angel, who's this, who's this message for? The message, he says, is for all the people. All the people, which means the message is for you. This Christmas message is for you. Loved ones, Jesus came to befriend and save the dirty and despised. He humbled himself. That's something you'll hear sometimes in churches. What does that mean? He humbled himself. It means he made himself approachable. This is a guy you'd feel comfortable going up and talking to. Even a shepherd felt like he could approach this guy. And isn't that exactly the pattern that we've seen the last three plus years, church, as we've taken a life-changing look at Jesus working through his life in the Gospels? We've seen it time and time again. People going to Jesus for help. The dirty, the despised, the needy, the desperate, going to Jesus, approaching Jesus. Trusting Jesus. He said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And the doctor is in. He came for the sick, He came to seek and save those who are lost. Friend, God has done everything he can so that you can go to him in faith, so you can approach him, so you can know him, so you can experience him and be with him forever. And as I've prayed earlier, the God of this world has blinded our eyes darkened our minds, and hardened our hearts, so we'll reject this. But the proof, the evidence, is everywhere. Since Christ invaded our planet, the improvements made to human society The bar of righteousness, the bar between what is right and wrong has done nothing but to get higher and higher and higher. And his people, though humble, though weak, they are empowered with his message and his spirit. And they have gone forth over all the world, making the world better, loving people, feeding the hungry, taking care of the poor, Rescuing the slaves, building the hospitals, manning the soup kitchens. Why? Because we found the good news of Jesus. And it is something that you cannot contain within you like the angel the day he was born. Hark the herald. Sound the trumpets. Jesus is here. Friend, if you are weary, friend, if you are weighed down, he says, come to me, approach me, and I will give you rest. I will give you life. Historians agree to not believe in the historical Jesus would be a great mistake. But friend, to not believe in the biblical Jesus would be the greatest mistake of all. Jesus came, he came not to beat people up. Shoot, he came not just to save us from our sins and to create a path for us to heaven. Jesus came to be with you. Emmanuel, God with us, to help, to help you, to make sense of all this life. One final thought from this text. When those first shepherds heard, the great and joyous news about Jesus, they made haste to run to him. Join them. Run to Christ. Let's pray. God, to say thank you for the message of Christmas, it's just, it just falls so short. But yet that's what we're left with. Thank you. Thank you for the message of Christmas. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son, born of a woman, to save us from our sins and to live among us, to dwell among us, to be God among us. To not be some lofty king that couldn't identify with us, but one who was made like us in every way, but yet without sin. And he invites us now to come to him for help. So give us the faith. Give us us the trust to go to him and to walk beside him. Not just today, but all the days of our life. Amen. Amen.